As we're preparing to enter into the tabernacle portion of the book of Exodus, I think it's helpful for us to remember or to be reminded of the big picture. Why is God tabernacling among His people? Why is He calling the nation of Israel to Himself? Why is He bringing them out of the land of Egypt, of slavery and bondage? Why is God doing this work? Why is He creating the tabernacle or ordering the tabernacle to be made in the manner that it is? And Psalm 2 is a psalm that refocuses us, brings us back to the core principles. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 2. And in honor of God's word, please stand. Psalm 2. Hear God's word. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to your word preached, and we pray that you would speak to us through that word by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Earlier this week, I had a conversation with a young person who's been a dear friend for some years. And this young person told me that she is losing her faith, that she doesn't feel like she believes in God any longer. And the reason that she gave is there's so much brokenness, there's so much pain. If God is good, if He is sovereign, if He is a God of love, then how can He allow this brokenness to exist, this hurt to exist around us? I think that's a legitimate question. I think it's a valid question. I think it's something that every one of you need to ask yourselves. If God is real, if this faith, that I profess or that people around me profess is real. How does hurt, brokenness, pain, 
injustice. How can that exist? The second psalm, I think, answers that question for us. It does get to the absolute core of that particular faith struggle. The first and second psalms are very closely linked together. In the Hebrew Bible, they come as one psalm unit. They're broken apart in our English Bibles. But you can see just from the verses themselves, if you look in your Bibles at Psalm 1, it opens with the words, Blessed is the man. And then Psalm 2, as we have just read, closes with the words, All who trust in Him are blessed. This bookend of blessing, the one is blessed whose trust is in the Lord. He's rooted like a tree. And this one who turns and kisses the Son and trusts in Him, there's blessing. But in between these two great promises of blessing comes a question. And the question is, why are people in rebellion? Look at the end of verse uh, of, of Psalm 1, the last verses. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So then why are there wicked? Why are there people who shake their fist against God? And brothers and sisters, I want to be vulnerable. I want to be transparent. I want to be clear. Over the past four years, I have seen on an experimental level, on a personal level, how it is that someone can be facing death And yet say, I'm good. Haven't harmed anybody. Me and God are good. Beloved, that ought to make you shriek in terror. That you would ever stand before your maker with those words on your lips And yet the gospel is presented again and again and again. And you young people that have grown up in the church, that have heard the gospel message all of your life, you young people, have you owned it? Have you seen your need for Jesus Christ? My words can't do it. I knew that intellectually. I've known that. I've preached it. But trust me, I've lived it. I've lived it where I say the words as clearly as I know how to say them. And yet the heart is unchanged. The ears are stopped up. Your earwax is not as effective a barrier to the sound of the gospel coming forth than your stubborn, hardened heart. And that ought to terrify you. It grieves me. It does cause me to fall on my knees and say, God, why me? Why did you open my eyes? 
praise you, Lord, that you did because I was just as stubborn. I was just as hard. But the fact of the matter is, Psalm 2 answers that question of why is there brokenness and why is there sin by presenting us with a very real picture of the world apart from Jesus Christ. We see three things in this psalm, and this psalm breaks apart really nicely into three different sections. You can, you can just follow it very easily, these three sections in your Bibles there. Verses 1 through 3 speak of the war that mankind is set in against God. Man's war. Verses 4 through 9 speak of God's response to that war. Man has set himself at war with God. In verses 4 through 9, God responds to that war. And then in verses 10 through 12 is that gospel victory. That promise that we will bend the knee. So we open with the question, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? As I was driving up to Northern Virginia on Friday, one of the things I'd forgotten about the South. I love the South. I'm a Southern boy. (laughs) The South is good for two things at least, probably others, but two things at least. One is, we fry anything. Anything. (laughs) You can get fried down south. The second is, oh my goodness, we put our faith on billboards. Anytime you're driving through the south, you will see all kinds of interesting Christian-based billboards. And one of those billboards that I saw fairly regularly, fairly commonly, is this billboard that says, God, colon, quote, I love you so much, end quote, parentheses, John 3.16. And I don't want to say no to that. Because John 3.16 is very clearly, God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have eternal life. But, (laughs) I'm not sure that that billboard starts where Psalm 2 starts. Could we at least agree on that? (laughs) Could we at least agree that Jesus loves you so much and is just begging for you to love Him back is not where Psalm 2 begins. Because that's man's problem. And beloved, that is your problem. And that is my problem. That is what sin is. Sin is shaking your fist rebellion against God. And that is the problem of humanity. That is the problem of every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl 
who is descended from our first parents, Adam and Eve, with the one qualification that our confession brings by ordinary generation. (laughs) That excludes Jesus Christ. He was not born dead in trespasses and sins. But every other person who has come into this world through the natural process of having children is born dead in trespasses and sin. But not just dead, born at war. At war with God. This war that we see here is not a rational war. And so you are not going to convince anyone of the gospel through rational means. Now, I'm not saying be irrational. (laughs) not saying be dumb or whatever. But the problem of rebellion is not intellectual. It's a problem of the heart. Notice verse 1. Why do the nations doubt? Is that what it says? Why do the nations disagree? Is that what it says? Look in your Bibles. Why do the nations rage? This is emotional. This is right to the very heart. The nations rage against God. The people are scheming. They're plotting against Him, against the Lord and His anointed. The problem is not intellectual. The problem gets right to our heart. It's also not... Isolated. It's not, why do some rage against God? Do you see that in the opening verses? It's not, why are the Egyptians raging against God? It's everybody. The nations. The peoples. The kings of earth. This is a universal Rebellion against God. And the third thing to note about this warfare is it is a rebellion. Now, a rebellion is when you declare war against the authority that is over you. That's what a rebellion is. That's the basic definition of to rebel. There's some authority that's over you, and you're declaring war against that authority. Notice what they are saying in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what is... The visual presentation of the nations, the peoples, and the kings in relationship to God, they're bound by Him, aren't they? They're 
captive to his courts. He owns them. You do not burst bands apart that are not already on you. You do not cast cords away that are not already right there on you. This rebellion, this casting away of God, this overthrowing of God is an emotional hatred against God. It's a universal picture of mankind without God. And it is a rejection of the God who already owns them. They are already under God's rule. That's the reality of mankind in rebellion against God. It's the reality of your heart. It's the reality of my heart. By our nature. By our nature, we are born children of wrath. And we shake our puny little fists against God. Now, you young people may not think that this applies to you because you're a good boy. You're a good girl. You've never done anything significantly bad. And I would draw your attention back to you look at it and you tell me if I'm wrong. It's universal. It's the rulers... The kings, the nations, the peoples, it's everybody. And that includes you. That includes me. And so God responds to that anger. God responds to that wrath in verses 4 through 9. And he doesn't respond the way that a billboard in the south would have him respond. He doesn't respond with, oh, oh, please, please, please. He doesn't respond with, come and I'll make you healthy, wealthy, happy, fix all your problems. He responds to that rebellion kind of in a way that ought to make us a little uncomfortable. Because it's kind of, I don't know, I'm not, it's kind of harsh maybe. He who sits in heaven, in heaven laughs. He mocks them in derision. The response of God to your shaking of your puny, stupid little fist is not to feel threatened by your unbelief, is not to feel disappointed by your unbelief. The response of God to unbelief is mockery. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. But then he goes on. He speaks to them in his wrath. And he terrifies them in his fury. One of the things about this response, and we see it not only here in the passage but also we see it taken up for us as both Peter in Acts chapter 4 and later Paul quote from this psalm. The entire Godhead is responding here. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. That's in reference to the Father. My Son is the one that I have set on Zion on my holy hill. That is Jesus Christ. This never was David. David was never promised that he would rule the nations. He was promised that his son would be the perfect king. And Jesus Christ came as David's greater son. And it is Jesus Christ that God sets on his holy hill in Zion. Peter, in Acts chapter 4, then goes on to say, the Holy Spirit, speaking through David, says, and he quotes these verses. My point in bringing this out is, the entire doctrine of the Trinity, the entire force of the Godhead, is taken up in response to mankind's rebellion. This is the bottom line. This is reality. This is the most foundational thing that you, that I, have got to get straight. You have got to get this organized. You have got to get your head in this game. Because this is the foundational reality. All of mankind is in rebellion against God, you included. And God responds to all of that rebellion with all of the Trinity, all of the Godhead, and all of His wrath and all of His fury. And beloved, a message of the Gospel that doesn't begin there, I don't think is worth much. I truly don't. Because the fact of the matter is, the gospel requires a lot out of you. It requires a lot out of me. Jesus says, you need to be willing to lose your life for my sake. Jesus says, you need to take up your cross, an instrument of torture and derision. You need to take that up in order to follow me. And the fact of the matter is, I'm not going to do that. And you are not going to do that unless you've got your head straight. (laughs) Unless you've got the picture of where we are, where you are, where I am, apart from Jesus Christ. I am under His wrath his scorn, his curse, if I stand before him clothed in my own righteousness. The good news is only good if it's saving me from this. If I can get out of this mess, if I can get out of this picture, if I can find myself not here, in the first nine verses, first six verses rather, of Psalm chapter 2. But I can rather find myself back in Psalm 1. I like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. That's what I want to be. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. I want Him to know my way. I want to be secure in Him. 
I want to be blessed. But beloved, you got to have a right ordering of reality. You got to understand the world rightly. I can blow smoke all I want and tell you all kinds of cool fairy tales. But here is what God's word says. Mankind stands in universal hatred, rebellion against him. And the entire Godhead responds with mockery, derision, wrath, and fury. Thank God Psalm 2 does not end at verse 6. Thank God that is not the end of the psalm. Because then we go on to this gospel victory. This gospel victory. And I'm going to skip over verses 7 through 9. We're going to move down to 10 to 12. I'll circle back around to 7 to 9. But this gospel victory. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fearing. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And then that final beautiful phrase, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What are you taking refuge from? You're taking refuge from His wrath. You're taking refuge from His fury. You're taking refuge from His judgment. And you're taking refuge in His Son. And that's that's just the, the most mysterious thing on its face. How do I take refuge in the One who is full of wrath at me? How do I take refuge in the one? And, and, and that leads all kinds of people to do all sorts of stupid things with the gospel. Really stupid things where we play down the reality of sin or we play down the, the reality of God's wrath and curse in order to emphasize it. That's garbage. God is wrathful. He is full of fury. And at the same time, I don't run from Him, I run to Him. How can I do that? How can that possibly make sense? And that's where we come back to verses 7 to 9. That's where we come back to the gospel. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That gospel offer becomes the absolute focal point of the apostles teaching, preaching in the book of Acts. Every single sermon Check me out. Spend time in the book of Acts. Every single one begins with the Old Testament, with God's wrath, and ends with the call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is apostolic preaching. You want to talk about apostolic ministry? 
we can call ourselves Sterling Apostolic Church. And people will come in expecting all kinds of craziness. But what they'll hear is apostolic preaching, which is that the God of the Bible is full of wrath and fury against humanity's rejection and pathetic war. And yet he has set his son on Zion, his holy hill. And he has promised to give the nations to that son. Now, what a mystery. How do the nations come to the Son? How do you come to the Son? Well, there it is. Verse 12, kiss the Son. He alone, beloved, He alone is the one who can bear God's wrath and fury. How can you run to the God who is wrathful at you? You run to Him because that same God is the one who bears all of His wrath. Jesus Christ on the cross, the sun was darkened, the curtain torn in two, the earth shook at the wrath of God poured out upon the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, who took away the sin of the world. Even as you and I were shaking our pathetic fists, He was bearing that sin, that sin of rebellion, that sin of indifference, that sin, of self-righteousness, that sin of arrogance that you or I would ever think that we are prepared to stand on judgment day and God is going to look at you or look at me and go, oh yeah, you're pretty good. You done good. You're not as bad as him. You didn't do what she did. You're okay. The unbelievable arrogance of that. The unbelievable stupidity of that. That you or I would ever stand before God clothed in our own righteousness. But beloved, right here in the psalm is the invitation. Right here in the psalm is this promise. If you kiss the Son, His wrath will turn. His anger will go away. His love will be set upon you. There is, of course, a sense in which that billboard in the south is true. God does love you so much that He sent His only Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish. But beloved, you got to start with your parishing. <laughs> that's where you got to start because that's where this psalm starts. You are perishing. But He has made a way. He has made a way out. He has made a way of salvation. And if you kiss this Son, then His anger will be turned and you will not perish.
in the way. I want you to notice one other thing that I find just amazing. In John's Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, is to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Now he's, the Thyatira is the church that harbors Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Gave her time to repent, but she has not repented. He has turned her over. And so he says, I want you to repent. I want you to come back. And then picking up in verse 24 of Revelation 2. To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Do you get that? Do you get, man, that's, just spend the rest of the afternoon just marinating in that. This mighty and powerful promise that God gives, the Father gives to His Son. He says to His Son, you will crush the opposition. Jesus in Revelation says to the faithful church, you will be the one to do this. Even as my Father gave me this message, This promise. Where did he give it to him? Psalm 2. You heard the words. Even as my father gave me this promise, I hand it over to you. Brothers and sisters, that's your calling. That's my calling. That's our reality. Jesus Christ says to the church that is faithful, I will give that church the authority to crush opposition, to break them like a potter's vessel, to shatter them. It's amazing. It's powerful. It's wonderful. And at the same time, there's not a thing in the world that you or I can do to affect it. (laughs) Not a thing. Because remember, the problem isn't intellectual. The problem is emotional. The problem is rage and plotting in vain. Foolish plotting. And yet, simply by the faithful proclamation of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners like me. Sinners like you. By that faithful life, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. You want to talk intersectionality? There's my intersection. And that better be your intersection as well. That better be your identity. You are either a sinner saved by grace or a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. That's the only two basic identities there are. Everything else is icing on the cake. 
But there's one core issue, and that is when you and I stand before your maker and my maker, in whose righteousness will you be clothed? The promise now, while you and I have breath, is that if you and I kiss the Son, then we will be brought in. We will be made alive. We will have new life. I can tell you, beloved, it's joyful. I've small way carried my little tiny itty bitty cross. Nothing like any martyrs or any of the great saints or whatnot. But I can tell you every step of my way, Jesus has never done me wrong. He has always sustained me. He has led me into things that I would prefer not to have been led into, experiences that I would love to have not experienced at the time, but every single solitary one of them I'm thankful for. Everyone. Hard times, difficult times, painful times, good times, glorious times, family times, all of the good as well as all of the difficult. Every one of them has been rich. Every one of them has been good because every one of them has come from His hand. Beloved, I can't convince you. I can't persuade you. That's what Psalm 2 tells me. I can't do it. But I can give witness. I can testify. Kiss this son. His anger will turn. His wrath will turn. It's come down in full force upon Jesus Christ so that those who are found in Christ can know His love, His forgiveness, His assurance, His peace, and walk in harmony with the creation that He has made. Let us pray. Father, by your word and spirit, you have caused men and women throughout the centuries to kiss that beautiful son. By your word and spirit, you have promised the church that we will be your agents of breaking that opposition. By that same word and spirit, Lord. Turn the hearts in this room that need turning. Bring them to life. Encourage the hearts in this room that need encouraging. Strengthen. Grant that we all together may go forth from this place more in love with that beautiful son. More in love with our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.